Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and ad-free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. On May 31st of 2014, three 12-year-old girls entered the woods outside of Waukesha, Wisconsin to play a game of hide-and-seek. Nothing unusual about that. Kids play hide-and-seek all the time. Uh, what was different about this game was that it ended with two of the girls stabbing the third girl 19 times. This wasn't the agreed-upon punishment for losing the game. No, this was their attempt to appease Slenderman. Slenderman was a creepypasta that first showed up on the website, something awful that uh, became really popular, um, eventually became a bit of an online urban legend. There were movies and video games made about it and everything. And yeah, I don't know, for whatever reason, these two girls believed that by killing their friend, they would get the approval of Slenderman. It sparked a whole series of debates about the internet and the dangers of giving impressionable kids access to everything on it that now has totally been resolved. No, it hasn't. Slenderman, of course, is nowhere near the first urban legend. While the internet may have made it possible for urban legends to spread a lot more quickly, urban legends have been around as long as urban areas have been around. But there is one that is considered the first urban legend, and it was called spring Jack. And it was a real person, supposedly, but his influence can still be seen in pop culture today. To understand the origin of Spring-Heeled Jack, we kind of have to start by talking about the Victorian era, specifically what was going on in jolly old London, I Nailed it. The Victorian age refers to the reign of Queen Victoria of England, which lasted from 1837 to 1901. And if there was one word that sums up the Victorian era, it's change. It was a period of profound change and profound social repression, but we'll get to that later. But no, I've argued before that I think maybe the 1800s might have been the most transformative century in all of human history, in the sense that like somebody living in 1801 was basically living the same way as their ancestors had for the last thousand years. By 1901, there were cars on the road, and most people lived in cities and worked in factories. That's a very simplistic version of that argument, but the point is that advances in technology changed communication and transportation in ways that we had never seen before. And the worldwide epicenter of all that change was in London. London's population rose from 1.9 million in 1801 to 6.2 million in 1897, spurred on by innovations like sewer systems and subways and electricity. But Victorian London was also kind of a nightmare. Class division was baked into Victorian society and nowhere was that more on display than London. If you were one of the have-nots, you stayed one of the have-nots for the entirety of your life. Luckily, lifespans were incredibly short. People lived packed into squalid tenements, the streets were caked with manure and trash, infectious disease rampaged the population, and smoke from chimneys and coal plants was choking. Just read any Charles Dickens book, he didn't make that stuff up, folks. Plus, it was the fact that there was all this new technology and a lot of it wasn't really understood. Lead and arsenic was used in all kinds of household products. Mercury poisoning was common. I mean. I could do a whole video about how everything in the Victorian era wanted to kill you. But maybe because there was so much changing so fast, the Victorian society became extremely socially repressive, sort of as a backlash to it, as a way to preserve the traditions that, you know, had made them who they were. And of course, these traditions mostly benefited the upper classes. Victorians were obsessed with class structures and created complicated rules around it. Like, just interacting with anybody was a social minefield. Like, you could not approach somebody to speak to them in any way that was in a higher station than you. Like you could go to jail for that. 
And women were particularly controlled to where you could go, who you could talk to, how you drank your tea. Pretty much every decision you made was predetermined for you. But men, on the other hand, were literally expected to die as opposed to breaking a social norm. The whole women and children on the lifeboats thing. The sense of helplessness that comes with being stuck in a rigid class system that's pretty much a death sentence if you're below a certain point. In a city filled with smoke and narrow alleyways riddled with crime was a, a recipe for some really interesting chaos to happen. And in September of 1837, one particular bit of chaos sprang out of the dark streets of London. Quite literally. A woman named Polly Adams was leaving a bar called The Green Man with some friends, and as they were walking through the Blackheath district, a black-cloaked figure jumped out of the shadows and attacked them. Supposedly, he smelled of sulfur and spit blue fire at the group. He then leapt toward Polly and began to, like, tear at her clothes with these metal clawed hands, and their friends ran away, terrified. Friends. And then, pretty much without warning, he just stopped and ran away into the night, laughing leaving her laying there, tattered and bloody with scratches across her abdomen. Just a random attack from a weird guy. A month later, the same person slash creature slash demon attacked another woman, this one named Mary Stevens. Mary worked as a servant in Lavender Hill, south of the Thames, and as she was leaving her parents' house, walking back to her job, she passed through a park called Clapham Commons. And as she was exiting the park, this same cloaked figure jumped out of the darkness, shot blue flame out of his face, and began to tear at her with these metal claws. But unlike Polly, he sort of sexually attacked her. He began kissing all over her. Mary screamed at the top of her lungs, apparently loud enough to get the attention of other people, and this guy let her go and ran off into the night, again, laughing. But it was the next sighting that earned this mystery man his iconic name. According to the story, a carriage was passing through the London streets when this same dark-cloaked man jumped in front of the carriage and scared the horses so bad that it tipped over. The driver of the carriage chased after this man, who was cackling with laughter, but as he got close to him, apparently this man jumped clear over a nine-foot fence. And that is how this weird, creepy dude earned the name Spring-Heeled Jack. Now, did this guy actually have some kind of spring device in his shoes that allowed him to jump over high walls? Did he have some kind of rope device? Were there rockets that hadn't been invented yet? Or was he just the world's first parkour artist? Parkour, parkour! I mean, granted, the driver said that he leapt it in a single bound, but people's memories can be sketchy. In fact, there's something called the Yerkes-Dodson Law of Arousal that, that states that uh, at low and high anxiety levels, our memories are, are pretty sketchy. It's kind of somewhere in the middle where we're having middle levels of anxiety that our memories lock in a lot better. So, you know, in this case, maybe he didn't actually clear it in one jump. Uh, maybe the wall wasn't actually nine feet high. There may have been some embellishments there. Not to mention it was dark and foggy, but regardless of the details, with this one jump, an urban legend was born. Headlines swept the newspapers of this dark figure attacking women and causing panic in the streets of London. Three months after the attacks, the Lord Mayor of London, John Cowan, received an anonymous letter claiming that the Spring-Heeled Jack attacks were actually pranks by the aristocrats of London. This becomes very important later on. And that same mayor in January the next year showed off a pile of letters that he had received from various people claiming to have been attacked by Spring-Heeled Jack. Which all or most of these accounts claim that Jack had red glowing eyes, clawed metal hands, the ability to jump really high, and always managed to get away. Now because most of these claims weren't verified by police or medical reports or anything like that, they aren't really considered canon. But the next one very much was. The woman's name was Jane Alsop, and as the story goes, she was sitting at home when somebody knocked on the door. So she opened the door. Remember how we used to open doors? And outside was a man claiming that he had found Spring-Heeled Jack and needed a candle to see. 
So she obliged, but as she approached to give him a candle, the man apparently pulled up his cloak and shot, again, blue flame at her face. She described him as wearing a large helmet, a white oilskin clothing, and red eyes that glowed with fire. Which I have to say is really handy when you need to light a candle. After he stunned her with the blue flame, he leaped on top of her, began scratching at her with the metal claws, and then pulled her out onto the stoop. Unfortunately for Jane, this attack seems to have been a lot more vicious than the other ones. Um, he did manage to scratch her pretty deeply on the abdomen and on the neck, and she lost large patches of hair as well. Uh, luckily, her dad rushed to the scene and scared the guy away. Now, what was unique about this attack, outside of it being especially vicious, is that Jane was a member of the upper class. And because this was Victorian London and class means everything, now it was something to take seriously. The Duke of Wellington, the Iron Duke, who defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, went out into the London night stating that he would track down Springheel Jack after hearing about Jane's attack. This 70-year-old man patrolled the streets at night with a rifle in hand for weeks, but was never able to catch the fiend. Shortly after the Jane Alsop attack, probably while the Iron Duke was off somewhere else in the city, a woman named Lucy Scales and her sister were passing through the Green Dragon Alley when a man dressed as a policeman approached them with a lantern in hand. And just as Jane began to speak to him, he shot the famous blue flame into her face. But this freaked her out so much that she had a seizure. And maybe because he was satisfied with what he had done, or maybe because he was freaked out by the seizure, the man just kind of ah, ran away. Newspapers were filled with reports of his attacks, and lurid tales of his exploits filled the Penny Dreadfuls, which were kind of like Pulp Fiction magazines of their day. And there were theater performances, Punch and Judy puppet shows, and preachers declaring that spring Jack was a demon punishing London for its wicked ways. And then... Jack went silent for a while. Maybe things just got a little too hot for him. Maybe he had achieved his goals of panic in the streets, you know, agent of chaos as it were. Or maybe he stopped leaving his victims alive. Jack sprang up again in 1843 in Northamptonshire, earning him a new nickname, Traveling Jack. Actually, that's not true, but that would have been awesome. The reports at the time claimed to see him jumping from rooftop to rooftop, quote, looking like the devil himself. In 1847, he popped up in Tainmouth, Devon, which was also related to the phenomenon of the devil's footprints that showed up in Devon in 1855. Some interesting Jack-related action occurred in Lincolnshire, where he was apparently shot at while jumping across rooftops, and apparently the bullets just kind of ricocheted off of him with a metallic sound. He even attacked a military base in Aldershot in Surrey County, where he would apparently sneak up on soldiers and slap them when they weren't looking. Apparently, he did it one time with a fish. Later stories would be attributed to him like a report in the News of the World in November of 1872 of the Peckham Ghost, claiming it was none other than spring Jack, who terrified a past generation. Similar stories published in the Illustrated Police News in April and May of 1873 reported sightings in Sheffield of the Park Ghost, which locals attributed to spring Jack. The last reported Jack sighting occurred in Liverpool in 1904. Witnesses reported seeing a guy bounding down the street before jumping up onto the rooftops and leaping away forever. And with that, Spring-Heeled Jack's reign of terror was over. Now, outside of a supernatural explanation, demons, aliens, and the like, uh, it's probably unlikely that Spring-Heeled Jack was one guy doing all those things. I mean, that would have been a pretty spry 80-year-old in 1904. The most accepted theory is that everything following the original London attacks in the 1830s were just copycats and urban legends. Uh, Victorian creepypasta, if you will. But there were several real people that were really attacked and injured by someone. And after 150 years, that someone remains a mystery. But there are some theories and clues that lead to some interesting speculation. For example, many people claim that he smelled like sulfur. Now, to the people at the time, that was just proof that he was the devil or a demon from hell. But, interesting thing about sulfur, it burns blue. And a blue flame was one of Jack's calling cards. 
It could be possible he was blowing sulfur dust out of his hand or through some kind of device in his mouth that ignited it. So some speculate that he might have been an educated man or had some kind of advanced knowledge of chemistry. Of course, back in those days, only the upper classes had access to advanced education, and Spring-Heeled Jack was known to wear fine clothes. And if you remember, the mayor did get that anonymous letter claiming that Spring-Heeled Jack was just a prank by the elite aristocrats of London. Given the severity of the attacks, one would assume that this was a particularly sadistic aristocrat. And there was one guy that kind of fit that bill. He was the Marquess of Waterford. Yeah, this guy was a real piece of work. He kind of lucked into his position due to some deaths in his family, uh, if you want to call that luck. But maybe because of the childhood trauma that was associated with that, he kind of became a cruel and sadistic monster. He was known to just kind of turn over apple carts as he was walking through town, and he would start fights just to start fights, and would sometimes even get into the fights with the officers that came to break up the fights. He was a drunkard that would just walk around in a drunken state trying to pick fights with people everywhere he went. He would even pay people to fight him. There was a story about how one time he abused a bunch of Glee singers while naked, which if you've seen the show Glee, I mean, it's kind of understandable. And I think he's actually where the term paint the town red came from because there was an incident where he and some fellow uh, douchebag lords uh, got super drunk, started a little mini riot in town and went through breaking windows and stealing door knockers off of doors and whatnot and stole some red paint and just <laughs> painted a bunch of stuff. And because they were so respectful of the legal system there, uh, when they showed up for court, they were wearing bearskins. He was in the upper class of Victorian London, which meant he was pretty much untouchable. And he loved to spread chaos wherever he went and had no qualms about hurting people. There is one small problem with this theory though. He only had one leg. Apparently one time he commissioned a new yacht and when he received it, he and his buds were having some fun and celebrating and, you know, blowing off cannons like you do and one of those cannons blew off his leg. Seriously, no matter how rich you are, you can still be a redneck. Anyway, kind of hard to leap tall fences in a single bound when you only have one leg, um, although it could have been one of his douchebag friends that was doing it. Long story short, he's been speculated as a culprit for Spring-Heeled Jack for a long time, but there's never really been any proof of it. There was, however, one person that was convicted of a couple of Spring-Heeled Jack attacks. In July 1847, an investigation into the attacks in Teenmouth, Devon that I was talking about earlier uh, led to a guy getting convicted of two charges of assault against women. Be this man a copycat or not, he did fit the bill. He had a skin coat that, quote, had the appearance of a bullock's hide, along with a skull cap and a mask with horns. The name of the man was Captain Finch, and he was described as, quote, a man of alleged ill health and apparently 60 years of age, about the last person that could have been suspected. Despite that, and despite the fact that the judge had reservations about accusing an old soldier of assaulting women, uh, he was found guilty on two counts, but he was charged 17 shillings each, which was a total slap on the wrist. Regardless of anything, he was one of the copycats. The original Spring-Heeled Jack has never been found. The Spring-Heeled Jack frenzy is mostly forgotten these days. Uh, he was considered more of a prankster than a monster, like the serial killers that would follow, like Jack the Ripper. He's been so mythologized through the Penny Dreadfuls over the years that it's, it's kind of difficult to separate myth from reality. And in fact, paradoxically, he kind of became a bit of a superhero over time. One popular Penny Dreadful author named Alfred Barrage, who wrote under the name A.M. Barrage, uh, kind of leaned into the whole idea of Spring-Heeled Jack as an aristocrat who did this stuff at night. But he put a little bit of a twist on it, and instead of making him somebody that was out terrorizing the good people of London, he was out terrorizing the criminals and the evildoers. He became a dark vigilante 
the Avenger of the Night, who used his vast wealth to construct an underground lair where he used his technological skills to create weapons that he would use to defeat the bad guys. Sound familiar at all? Now, there have been a lot of characters that fit into the trope of the wealthy guy who uses his resources to help out the little man, but uh, very few of them were illustrated dressed like a bat. Now, there's no way to know exactly how much Spring-Heeled Jack may have influenced Bob Kane when he created Batman, but it's an interesting thought that you could tie all of the iterations of Batman through the years, all the way back through these pulpy, penny dreadfuls, to this one weird Victorian guy that had a thing for sulfur. And I know I, for one, can't wait for Christopher Nolan's Dark Jack trilogy. It's easy to see why Spring-Heeled Jack made such an impression of people back in the Victorian age. I mean, if somebody left out of the darkness and spit blue flame into my face, I'd probably soil my underwear. But that's okay, I just replace him with some Mack Weldons. So let's talk about Mack Weldon, shall we? Mack Weldon makes the most comfortable underwear you're ever gonna wear in your life, and they make sure they're the most comfortable underwear because they make their own fabric. They created a few different types of fabric, actually. You've got dry knit, air knit, warm knit. They even have one called the Silver Series, which is actually treated with silver, so it's antimicrobial, which means they remain odor-free. And they didn't just stop with underwear. They make shirts, shorts, pants, hoodies, jackets, hats, scarves, gloves, slippers. If you've got a body part, they've got clothing to fit it. The buying process is super easy online, and they even offer a no-questions refund if you don't like the first pair you buy. And if you like their underwear, and I think you will, you'll want to buy more in the future. So they've got this loyalty program called Weldon Blue to make it even easier and save you money. When you sign up for Weldon Blue, you get free shipping for life. That's level one. But after you spend $200, you get to level two, which gives you 20% off every order for the next year. So if you want to give them a try and see for yourself, just go to macweldon.com slash Scott and enter Joe Scott at the promo code at checkout. You'll get 20% off your first order. And again, if you don't like it, they will refund your money. So you've got nothing to lose. Anyway, links in the description, but one more time, it's macweldon.com slash Scott. Keep those tender bits tender. Thanks to Mac Weldon for supporting this video, and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon and the members on the YouTube memberships that are supporting this channel, building an awesome community, and just being great people. Uh, I got some new members that I need to shout out real quick. We've got Robert Slaughter, awesome name, uh, Susan uh, Dusan Mudrinik, <laughs> C. Cooper, Todd Salvador, Ronnie Smyoth, Rob Dragon, Phil uh, Allen, Alex Foley, Chris Boucher, uh, Mark Johnson, Adam, Margaret Mailer, Margaret Gaylor, Philip Shane, Max Coder, and Izul Hakim. Murdered all those. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining, and uh, if you would like to join them and get early access to videos and exclusive live streams, and get a little, little thing next to your, a little icon next to your name in the comments so you'll stand out from all the rest, uh, just click the little join button right down below. T-shirts available at the store at answerswithjoe.com slash store. I don't wear a lot of branded stuff on here very much, but I didn't really have a shirt that had anything to do with Victorian demons, so I, I kind of went with this. But anyway, if you want to check them out, there's a lot of fun stuff, and there is, like, branded stuff, as you can see right there. Uh, again, answerswithjoe.com slash store. Um, I appreciate it. Helps the channel. Please do like and share the video if you liked it, and if this is your first time here, I'll put a little thing right here. Google thinks you'll like that. Any of the others down here that have my name on it, uh, just check them out. And if you do like them and you want to see more, I do come back with videos every Monday, so I invite you to subscribe. All right, that's it for now. Thanks for watching. You guys go out there, have an eye-opening rest of the week, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.